0: listening to the original say the damn score podcast part of the say the damn score podcast network
1: here's your host Logan Anderson welcome to episode 76 of the say the damn score podcast as always I'm your host Logan Anderson and this is a podcast about sports casting in the sports casting industry this week it's time to return to the little broadcast booth of horrors Two years ago, around Halloween, I made a compilation of the best broadcast horror stories from different podcast guests throughout the history of the show, as well as some of my own personal horror stories in the business. Well, Halloween is just around the corner, so I thought, what a perfect time to come back to the little broadcast booth of horrors.
2: Our first story takes place in Russia. One of the scariest places in the world and stars Bob Costas in the tale of the oozing
3: eye. <laughs> well, I mean, the most obvious one is of all the terrible timing to get pink eye, or more accurately, viral conjunctivitis, on the eve of the 2014 Sochi Olympics. Now, all of the ridiculous theories that bounced around the internet and, and other places about how I got it are 100% wrong. I have no idea how I got it, but none of it is nearly so interesting as what people speculated. But in any case, I got it. It wasn't my fault that I got it. I tried for five or six nights to do the best I could. I wore glasses to disguise it, but you couldn't really disguise it. And I've said this before in other places. Look, we've all gone to work. You have, we all have, feeling less than our best. It's what a professional does. If I just felt lousy and had the stomach flu or something, you just soldier through it and no one has to know. If you had a broken leg, it's in a cast, it's under the desk, nobody has to know. But this was literally written on my face. But I felt an obligation to all the people who had worked so hard. It isn't just those two and a half, three weeks during the Olympics. They work for years in preparation, traveling around the globe to put together features putting together extensive research manuals. Some of these people work 18, 20-hour days, truly, during an Olympics, and the primetime host is kind of carrying the ball for them, and I felt an obligation to them to hang on and do the best that I could, because no one else was prepared to do exactly the job that I was doing. The people who speculated wrongly, all people who don't know anything about me or anything about how this works, that... I just wanted to be there because that's a big exposure deal. Hey, by that time, I'd done 10 Olympics. If I'd had my personal choice, I certainly would have rather been out of sight and out of mind looking the way I did and feeling the way I did. I did it because I thought it was the professional thing to do. I lasted for five or six days, and then my eyes became so light sensitive that I couldn't uh, be in the studio any longer, so I had to step aside for a while and then... It wasn't fully cleared up until several weeks after the Olympics, but when it got back to the point where I could function, I came back and did the last five or six nights of the Olympics, but I did it out of, out of a sense of professional obligation and for no other reason.
1: The first personal story that I'm going to share is the process that led to us losing the radio rights at Presentation College, which eventually— a few steps down the line led to the decision to move to the Twin Cities, but at the time, really devastated me. And it started in sometime in January, and I got a call from the athletic director, who, you know, has since been fired. If that tells you anything about his level of competency, not for uh, changing radio. Right, that really was not very important on the priority list of the college, and frankly, any college for that matter. But I got a call asking when we were going to give our package and our proposal of what we wanted to do for a new contract. And because of some turnover in the station, we actually had thought that we still had another year before we had to do that. What had happened was our general manager had always just taken care of that and we'd never had to worry about it. He would ask me if I wanted to do anything different and I'd say, maybe we can try adding this. He'd go make the proposal and it was, and it would get signed. Well, he left and between the new GM and everybody else at the station, signals got crossed and we didn't realize that the rights were coming due. So we didn't So we didn't get out in front and try to get the contract signed before anyone else could get involved. And our competition actually submitted the first proposal instead of us. And that was problematic from the beginning. So then over a long, you know, probably five or six month process, we made our initial pitch, waited for a long time. It was still in the middle of the season at that point and it got down to a moment i want to say it was in march that they said okay we have received your proposal and we've received the competition's proposal and we really like the competition's proposal out of courtesy for our long relationship with you we want to give you guys an opportunity to have another meeting and you can try to you can try to sweeten the pot and and basically give one gave us one more chance to potentially seal the deal. They wouldn't tell us what was offered from the competition of course, but we had somewhat of an idea of what they probably had offered. So we went in, we brought our owner up and went into this meeting and he just said, "Okay, so what do you guys want that we're not offering?" <laughs> the marketing director and the athletic director Just stared at him. Didn't say anything. I don't know if they had already made up their minds. I think our owner expected a negotiation. They expected a proposal and didn't know what they wanted. And it was a very short meeting. We went home and at that point I knew it probably wasn't going to happen. I still had hopes. I know that a lot of the coaches on the athletic department staff personally vouched for Uh, our station and for me to continue to be the announcer but obviously it didn't happen and it all culminated with a call in late April or early May where I went in to talk to the athletic director he says you probably know since I'm having you come in that you guys didn't get it I'm sorry thanks for your years of service and that was it and I called a bunch of friends and I went out to the bar way too late that night, ate lots of chicken wings, I remember that specifically, and just pouted for a few days, I was really unhappy. Obviously since then that's led to a domino effect that I think will end up being a long term positive, but at that time I was really devastated. I know that a lot of people go through that, and if you're in the business long enough that Most people probably go through that, but it was the first time anything like that had happened to me. I was still kind of jaded with the belief that if you really work hard and go above and beyond what the expectations are, that people will be loyal to you, and obviously that's not the case. So that was a definite horror story in my broadcast career, but it certainly has had positive Repercussions down the road, and
2: I can look back on it and laugh at this point. In many scary stories, a case of mistaken identity leads to truly terrifying experiences. Here's what happened when Adam Amin of ESPN and Toby Rowland, the voice of the Oklahoma Sooners, misidentified someone during a game with chilling results. I was doing a high school football game, and this made Deadspin,
4: so not, certainly not my proudest moment, but Tom Luganville and I were doing a high school football game in 2012. Derek Henry uh, was going up against uh, Kelvin Taylor, two guys that eventually went to the sec. And I remember uh, Fred Taylor is the son is the father of Kelvin Taylor. Fred was an outstanding running back for the Jacksonville Jaguars and a very good one at Florida. And our crew did this amazing job of putting together side-by-side video of Kelvin and Fred kind of doing the same motions on the field. and and it was a really great job. And in the second quarter, one of our cameramen, it was a local cameraman in the Jacksonville area, said, hey, I found Fred Taylor. Uh, here he is. I, d- I didn't get a chance to meet Fred before the game, which I would have loved to do, and talk to him. But I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't I didn't know who he was. Or I knew who he was, but I didn't know where, what he looked like or where he was. And our camera guy said, hey, he's here. I've got him. You can, You guys can talk about him. And our producer was like, all right, hey, Fred, that's Fred Taylor. So we start talking about Fred Taylor and we're showing his son and doing all this great video stuff. And then like middle of the third quarter, we're still talking about him and showing him my phone starts to blow up and we're saying, you idiots. That's not Fred Taylor. That's somebody else. Like you guys are morons. Like, I can't believe you're doing this. I mean, we were accused of being racist at the time, which really is hurtful. And I was like, Oh my God, I, I hope I didn't uh, offend or upset anybody. And you know, we just, we were just going by the recommendation of one of the camera people and sure enough, when we found the actual Fred Taylor who was at the game, uh, I just remember going, uh, there's Fred Taylor. We were misidentifying him earlier. Uh, second down and eight. And, and just completely blowing past it because that's all we could do uh, because we were so mortified and we felt like idiots. And now, you know, years later, we can look back on that moment and say, wow, that was really funny. Uh, I can't believe we misidentified somebody's dad for two quarters and really wrote it. I mean we were showing him a lot and uh we can laugh about it now but at the time I just remember feeling like such an idiot and just being mortified and again technically is it our fault I mean I yeah no you know the camera guy told us that that was him so we got to trust our crew he happened to be wrong that particular night and hey if I if Fred had gotten there or if I'd seek them out or maybe if I had prepared better or whatever Maybe we wouldn't have had that problem, but I didn't. And I was terrified at the moment, and I can laugh about it now.
5: The on-air moment that I uh, regret the most is uh, several years ago, we were playing a football game in Lubbock. And uh, Javon, I called a play where Javon Foster got a pick six for us. Big moment in the game. The moment in the game was a pick six that Javon Foster took back to the house and OU wins it. And uh you, you go on uh you know in the rest of the game and you do the uh, post game show and everything and I drove to Lubbock that night and I'm in the car on the way back and I hear the highlight come on whatever national radio show I'm listening to and there it is it's Javon Foster with the pick six to win it and it dawns on me What I've said, we don't we don't have a Javon Foster, but there's there's no such player as Javon Foster at the University of Oklahoma. We have a Javon and we have another guy named Foster. And in the heat of the moment, I've combined the two into a fictional character and I I butchered the play. I, I didn't know I said it at the time and nobody around me told me I said it at the time. Maybe they were scared to tell me. I don't Maybe they didn't hear it. I don't know. But I completely butchered the uh, uh, call of the most important play of the game. And uh, certainly my radio partner, who I do the show with in the morning, heard it and grabbed it and has replayed it a thousand times since then. <laughs> and uh, they enjoy making fun of me frequently. Of uh, Javon Foster has become a legend in uh, University of Oklahoma circles because he only made one play. And he won a game with it uh, back then. He's kind of like Sasquatch. Nobody's ever really seen him. But it was an embarrassing moment for me. And I felt bad uh, for the young man who actually had the interception that uh, he had a big moment like that. And and we called him the wrong name.
1: My next personal horror story comes from when I moved here to the Twin Cities. And I was getting ready for my very first broadcast broadcast for a web stream company here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area. And it was uh, two high school teams, a local game of the week. I don't want to say the name of them. My purpose of this podcast is certainly not to throw anybody under the bus. But I went to the opening organizational meetings for this streaming company. And they're a very good streaming company. i Again, I'm not trying to throw my own employer under the bus in any way. They they distributed equipment to everybody before the very first week of games. And I went to the school after having a lot of difficulty getting a hold of the coaches. Never, in fact, got anything from one of them. and I ended up just having to ask for starters and a depth chart at the game before the game. But when we went to the game, I put all the equipment together and realized we were missing a piece of equipment. And it had been given to me the day before from from the streaming company. And I called them saying, hey, is there any way to set this up without this piece? And they're like, oh, did we forget to put that in there? They have 15 to 20 announcers. It's not difficult to imagine how they could miss one small piece for one pack. So what they had me do is run to Best Buy, which was uh, five to ten minutes away from the football stadium, fortunately, and I bought a piece and got everything plugged in and ready to go, only to realize that the Ethernet connection was not active. And our setup involved being hardwired into an Ethernet port or having a cradle point, and because we were told that the internet was active, we didn't have a cradle point there, so we went through all of that, only to not get on the air for the first time ever in my broadcasting career, because the technical issues were more than we could overcome with that equipment and with that setup. We needed to have internet, we couldn't have it, so I sat there, kept notes on the game, and did our call to the local radio station that that does basically the scoreboard show for Twin Cities area high schools. And that was all I did that day. I still got paid because it wasn't my fault that we didn't get on the air. So the next day, the first game was on a Thursday to start the season. The next day, they had a game get moved up from 7 to 5 because of inclement weather coming in. There were storms in the forecast. So they called me at probably 1 o'clock or noon while I was at work at Home Depot, and they said, would you be able to do a game for us at 5 o'clock? I got off at 2.30, so I said, "Um, I mean, I won't be able to do any preparation, but I'd be happy to do it. They said, okay, we thought you might since you didn't have a game yesterday, and Our normal guy who was supposed to do this game can't get off of work in time to be there by five, so we figured with your schedule it would work. So I got there, got everything set up, internet connection was good, and then the streaming company just had all kinds of issues with their streaming platform, and we didn't get on the air again just because the entire back end of the encoding software just went kaput. None of the games across the entire platform got on the air, and it was a little bit of a mess for a lot of different people. Since then, everything has gone really smoothly, but those very first two days of of essentially my broadcasting career in the Twin Cities had about everything you could imagine go wrong, and the very first two times that I was not able to get on the air happened in back-to-back days, so... It was a unique situation that certainly I can look back on now and and
2: chuckle at, but were very frustrating at the time. Foreign substances can be deadly, whether it's the black oil from the X-Files or a man-eating blob of slime from outer space. You don't want to see it in your broadcast booth. The next two stories from Trog Keller, the senior vice president for ESPN, and Dave Snell, the voice of the Bradley Braves, us just how horrifying foreign substances can be.
5: I I I I've, I've watched some things go on the air like Mike and Mike would bet every year on the NCAA uh NCAA um, uh basketball tournament and the loser had to do something outrageous. And um and one year it was uh it was Mike Greenberg if he lost he had to milk a cow. And uh I will say that uh, it, we had the cow in the studio, and um, evidently they had not given the cow sufficient time outside before they brought it in the studio. so just as Mike is going to milk the cow, there's a little bathroom break going on <laughs> so, in in the studio. somehow we got through it okay. By the way, it made for great radio,
6: and we each took turns being the official station. Well, when we went to Furman. I was the third third wheel. So I got the worst spot and it was up in a it had sawdust, it had it it never been used, but I had to go up there and, and do the play by play. And there were pigeon droppings all over the place. And this pigeon, there were two or three of them, were fluttering around during the during the broadcast. And one of them was like right above my head, and I wasn't sure what was going to gonna fall on me. So that was at Furman, and uh, I'll never forget the game. Bradley did win that game, by the way. <laughs> and I did not
1: get nailed by a pigeon, but they were up there. The 2016 football season was the first year that I covered Morningside College since I covered them as a student, Morningside College is my alma mater. And after we lost the rights at presentation, I accepted a full-time job in Yankton, South Dakota, which is about 45 minutes to an hour away from Sioux City. So I called my connections there and to see if they needed a color commentator or a sideline reporter or just to see if I could get involved with their broadcast in any way and the timing worked out that they needed a play-by-play guy, so I started doing their games. About halfway through the season, I developed a medical issue that, pardon the crassness of this, but basically I had to go to the bathroom, I had to pee every 10 to 15 minutes or so, and it became really difficult to hold it in but very little would come out. So I went to the urologist and went through probably about a month and a half of trying different medications and trying different tests and medical procedures. We won't go into the details of most of them. They're quite unpleasant in many ways, but the moral of the story, it's it's difficult to broadcast games if you have to run to the bathroom every. 10 to 15 minutes. So I figured out ways to get by. Uh, it would be a little bit easier if I stood up. I wouldn't drink water at all the day of a football game to make sure that the symptoms weren't quite as severe. But this all came to a head when when me and my color analyst had to take a long road trip from Sioux City, Iowa to Whitewater, Wisconsin to play the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. And I had to do a high school game the night before on Friday, and then uh, my color guy Kevin was going to pick me up, and we were going to drive about three-quarters of the way overnight, stop at a hotel, sleep for, oh, probably four or five hours, and then get up and make the last two hours, get there, start the game, and turn around and go back. Well it took much longer to get there than we expected because I made the car stop not every 10 to 15 minutes but probably once every hour for just about the entire trip and fortunately Kevin was not only a really good color commentator but a good sport as well he didn't complain too much about it but I'm sure it was really really irritating to have to stop that often on that long of a trip and make it that much longer so Eventually, we did find a medication that basically made the problem go away and it was able to uh, go forward like normal and have not had issues since. But but that is absolutely a situation where I, I look back and just think how difficult it was and some of the um, extreme measures that I had to take to make sure that Frankly, I wasn't peeing my pants in the
2: broadcast booth. How's that for a horror story? The Shining is the infamous story of a murderous hotel. Donnie Barnes, the voice of the Omaha Storm Chasers, the AAA affiliate of the Kansas City Royals, shares his story of a road trip gone wrong, ending with a haunting hotel experience of another variety.
0: I think the worst road trip that I encountered in eight years was... I believe in 2014, we had a week-long trip where we went to the two desert cities in the Cal League, which are Lancaster and High Desert. Now, High Desert folded. Well, yeah, they technically folded last year, and then the franchise was relocated. So they're not in the league anymore. But (laughs) when I was there, you had Lancaster and High Desert. Lancaster's a nice ballpark, but it's on the edge of the Mojave Desert. It's really hot, really windy. So we were there for four days, and then we were in high desert, I think, for three. Those are two really tough places to call games. Lancaster, because the wind always howls straight out there, so games are typically very high-scoring. Both parks, they were very high-scoring. The ball flies, lots of home runs, massive ballparks to try to um, compensate for the, the way the ball carries. So... Balls would find the gap really easily. Little shallow pop flies that would normally be caught would fall in because the outfielders had so much more ground to cover. So games would just be crazy out of control at both those parks. They would be long, they would be high scoring, and they were just very exhausting to do. On top of that, we in that seven-game road trip, we lost each of the first six games by one run. I mean, we found every possible way to lose a game. (laughs) for six straight days, by one single run each time. So, everybody was kind of on edge at that point. Also, my radio equipment was failing, the power cord for my, I think I was using a, a red box at the time, so the unit that, for people that don't work in broadcasting, the unit that transmits the signal out through a phone line back to the radio station, the power cable was giving out, so, I was having to hold the power cable in. I was having to find just the right position to physically hold the power cable with my left hand while I called the game. And that position would vary. Like this power cable was so frayed it was getting finicky to where you'd have to hold it in different positions constantly to keep the power on. So I was having to do this for multiple days while a new, uh, a new adapter got shipped out to me. So it was just everything that could go wrong was going wrong. And then finally, on the final day of the road trip, it was a Saturday. And I remember I was just looking forward to sleeping in. I was so exhausted from this trip where everything had gone wrong. And at 6 o'clock on the Saturday morning, I get... I, I got woken up by or awakened, I guess, whatever whatever it's grammatically correct way of saying that is, by somebody pounding on my hotel room door. And this is a, at a Motel Six in Adelanto, California, where high desert play. You're in the middle of the Mojave Desert, pretty depressing looking place to be. This Motel Six was very run down. Worst hotel in the league by far. And some shady characters would hang out there and so I get awakened at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning where I was so looking forward to sleeping in by somebody pounding on my door. And I was just, I was totally out of it. And I was disoriented. I was slightly panicked because I thought, well, if somebody's pounding on my door at six in the morning, there's got to be something wrong. Is the hotel on fire? Is there an emergency? What, What is happening? So I rushed to my door. I didn't even think to look in the, in the little people. I just opened the door and there's this there's this short guy who's probably about five foot five wearing a long white T-shirt with this shifty look on his face. And I look to his side and he has this giant pit bull who's almost as big as he is with a big spiked collar around his neck. <laughs> and the guy looks me up and down and he, he says, hey, is Andre there? Andre or, or Alex? I said, no. He's so, oh, Okay. And he turns, and he and the dog rush off. And that was it. And so I'm left at 6 o'clock on a Saturday morning saying, A, what just happened? B, that was not what I needed after what has already been a trip from hell. C, who are Andre and Alex? Why does that guy (laughs) with that pit bull think that they should be in my room? And is somebody else going to come back also looking for Andre and Alex? And what are Andre and Alex up to? I'm guessing it's not anything good. Are they going to think that I'm up to that? Uh, it was that, that was, that was just the cap run, what was a very unenjoyable road trip. So, generally, I really liked traveling with Visalia. The Cal League is a good travel league, there aren't a lot of long bus rides. So I got off pretty easy overall, but that particular trip was one that I was glad when it was over, and uh, I'm glad I don't have to to go through it again.
1: (laughs) My next personal story doesn't really have much to do specifically with any game or broadcasting situation, but because me and Sarah decided to move to the Twin Cities after coming back from our vacation... You know, we ended up actually being homeless for a month. And when I say homeless, I don't want to be overdramatic. We were not sleeping under a bridge. What happened is we had initially planned on trying to get into an apartment quickly and staying with friends for a week or so. When we saw what the apartment rental market was where we wanted to live, the prices were outrageous. We just decided it would be better to just buy a townhome and that's what we did and we actually got an offer put in and approved less than a week from when we got back from our European vacation but that obviously means you know waiting for closing and filling out lots of paperwork and waiting for things to go through so it was almost an entire month that we didn't technically have a place of our own so we stayed on whoever's bed, couch, floor, whatever that we could stay on for almost an entire month. I think it was seven different places that I added up in four or five different cities and spent a lot of time at my brother-in-law's in Mankato, which is about an hour and a half away from the Twin Cities. So when I had things to do in the Twin Cities, I'd go up there for the day and drive back, which was quite a long drive. I definitely wouldn't want to make it every day, but for a short-term solution, it was what worked. We also stayed at my in-laws on my wife's side in Slayton, Minnesota, and they live on an island with a dike that serves as a bridge. And one day, we actually got flooded for a couple of days actually we got flooded onto that island they got nine inches of rain overnight and we the dike was knee deep in in flood water and we could not get over it to like get to the bank to get our down payment money that was due that day so what we ended up having to do is thank god there was a good samaritan on that island who had a big tall-wheeled tractor with a flatbed trailer behind it and he let people drive their cars up onto this flatbed and then he would take the tractor which could handle the deep knee-deep water with no problem and take it across the dike so i rode on a flatbed with my car just hoping there were no gaps in the dike and made it across and then we walked across floodwater the next morning to get to uh, friend's wedding and get that earnest money out of the bank and sent to where it needed to be. So that was an interesting stage of life and uh, I don't want to do it again, but definitely have some good memories from, from the
2: inconveniences that it caused. How many times in the Final Destination series have we seen everyday nondescript items turn into agents of terror? Larry Weir, The voice of Eastern Washington tells his harrowing tale of a stray subway sandwich.
7: We had a a broadcast once in basketball uh, where we were having a hard time. We were using a Comrex Matrix, I think, at the time. And so we had a phone connection. And for whatever reason, the phone line wasn't clean that night. And we couldn't make connection with the Matrix over the phone. And so I'm trying to make that connection with the matrix and I'm broadcasting the game with a cell phone, uh, held up to my head and I've got my headset still on my head to, to hold the, the cell phone. Um, so I'm not having to, to sit there with that thing the whole time. And our cheerleaders come out onto the floor during the timeout to do, uh, a sandwich Giveaway. They're throwing Subway sandwiches up into the crowd, six inch subs. And so they're throwing those things up into the crowd. And all of a sudden, one of the male cheerleaders, you know, winds up like a uh, fast pitch softball pitcher and wants to fire one up into the upper deck, only they fired one into my forehead (laughs) and knocked my headset off. Cell phone went flying. I'm already stressed uh, because we're not making connection with the station. I'm having to do a broadcast on a stupid cell phone. And so I'm pissed off anyway and he hits me in the head with his subway sandwich and it goes up into the crowd and I'm just livid and that poor kid was mortified because that's not what he obviously what he was trying to do and I didn't care that was what he was trying to do I was I went quite hot that doesn't happen very often I might even have been the last time that I just blew up into a rage and I was Yelling at the poor kid, and then after you get done with that, you feel bad because you know the kid didn't mean to itch you in the head with the sandwich, but it was the cell phone flying and the the headset flying and and uh, everything else that uh, that contributed
1: to that. I spent two years in Yankton, South Dakota, working for a station where that was very kind to allow me to do a lot of freelance work, and one of those. Freelance Jobs was covering indoor football for the Sioux City Bandits, part of the Champions Indoor Football League. And while that league was, I would say, not a well-run league, the Bandits were a very well-run team. They had minimal roster turnover. They kept accurate stats. I got paid on time. Everything was good with them. But I could go all day. Telling stories about indoor football in just two years, and <laughs> how bizarre it was, One game, the head coach was Meadow Lemon, who was the son of Meadowlark Lemon from the Harlem Globetrotters from years ago but the the horror stories involved I have two good ones: The first was the bandits were hosting a team. Thank God it was at least a home game, but I showed up with my boards put together, I think it was only my second or third game covering the Bandits, and I had my boards for both teams put together. I had been unable to get in touch with any coaches or members of the other team, but I I had figured out by that point that that was going to be the norm, like it or not. So I talked to the coach beforehand. I like to get the name pronunciations, a short pregame interview, just talk about his team a little bit. Well, I showed him the roster to go over name pronunciations and get starters, and he goes, oh yeah, this is all wrong. He then proceeds to cross out nine of 21 names and just wrote in brand new players. So all the preparation I had done for that game was pretty much null and void at that point, and I can assure you that I will never ever put that one on (laughs) on any kind of a demo reel, because it was difficult trying to figure out who was who and have any information about anybody, but it definitely happened. The other one also involved a coach, and I had Uh, emailed him about getting an interview before the game. I think he even sent a short email back and said that, yeah, that's fine. We can just talk before the game and go over everything. And I was talking to his assistant before the game, before I could talk to him. And he mentioned that their starting quarterback was going to be out and that that could change the game plan. Obviously, at that point, we're probably... 30 minutes away from when I would go on the air, an hour from kickoff. So even if I was unprofessional and ran straight to the coaches with that information, there's not a whole lot that could be done. So I figured I've had much more sensitive information shared with me by opposing coaches than that. And so I mentioned it not in the interview, but after the interview with with the head coach for the opposing team. And when I say it, he just freezes and gives me this icy glare and says, how did you know that? I go, oh, well, your assistant told me. He didn't calls the assistant over from, oh, probably 30 or 40 feet away and says, did you give injury information to the enemy? Well, I'm just like, whoa, what's happening here? And then he proceeds to just dress down the assistant coach right in front of me and says finishes it by saying, we'll talk about this after the game. That coach has since been fired. I Again, I don't want to bring anybody down or rain on anybody's parade, so I'm not going to say who it is, but he's been fired since then because he was just kind of a strange ranger. But that was a unique
2: experience. You would think that after years of movies that people would stop building homes on cursed grounds, Pet Cemetery, House on Haunted Hill, and the Amityville Horror should be all the evidence you need. However, one minor league team built a new stadium, and I don't know if it was cursed, but the opening day broadcast by Joe Davis, now the TV voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers, makes it look like a serious possibility.
8: Yeah, one that I, I always think of is opening day my third year in montgomery third and final year we were at pensacola opening the new ballpark there so we're really excited for that this waterfront ballpark is going to be beautiful beautiful day we get down there go into the press box four hours before first pitch or whatever at this point and they're still in there working on stuff like you know they're under the counters putting in screws and getting the getting the counters mounted to the wall and like, wow. Well, well, uh, this is you know this is interesting. We're, we're a few hours from the season starting, and the counters still aren't fixed in there. Uh, but figuring out this is the worst thing. It's not a not a huge deal. We knew that the park wasn't completely ready. Uh, well, they didn't have the phone line hooked up in the visiting radio booth, and as you know, you need a phone line to do a radio broadcast. It, it, you know, I'm assuming it's a little different now. There's ways around it with streams and everything. You could use Skype or whatever to stream it, but. At this point, this is 2012. We weren't quite that far along in uh in the you whole know, technology of minor league baseball broadcasting. We wound up doing the game opening day, which he obviously weighed all off season for, but doing it off a cell phone and to not have to hold the phone up to our ear the whole time. I'm saying we Aaron Vargas was my number two that year. So this is his first day in the booth. We were taping we taped the phone to uh like an empty it might not even have been empty just so it was heavier, but uh like a Mountain Dew bottle, liter of Mountain Dew, twenty ounce Mountain Dew. We had the we had the phone taped to it to kind of mimic <laughs> like a microphone stand. And that's how we did opening day.
1: So the final story that I'm going to share about myself has to do with weather, which if you live in South Dakota, Minnesota Even Iowa, Nebraska, anywhere basically above the Mason-Dixon line, you're going to deal with inclement weather from time to time. North and South Dakota can be particularly nasty. And there was one game when I was actually covering the Sioux City Bandits and they traveled to Bismarck, North Dakota. I've been to Bismarck three times and two times on the way home I've had horrible issues with weather, but the one that I'm talking about this time, we finished the game, it's snowing like crazy, we saw that that was probably going to be the case coming in and I knew that it was possible that, that it might happen, but I had driven myself that time instead of riding the bus thinking that you know I'd have a better chance of hurrying up and getting out and trying to find an alternate route, that was really dumb. What happened is I looked at the radar, and it looked like it was really bad in one direction, but taking another route, it looked clear. It was not. I ended up driving for probably two hours, never getting faster than like 25 miles per hour. I couldn't see a thing. I realized that there was no way I should have been out there. I was lucky I didn't get stuck, but it was... The border of Southern North Dakota and Northern South Dakota, and there's just nothing out there, so I had to go for quite some time before I found any sign of civilization and The first time that I did, I stopped at the first hotel that I saw, which ended up being quite nice uh, there I found out later that there were two hotels in that town. it was a town of about a thousand at the border of North Dakota and there was one I found out the next day right across the street that looked like the Bates Motel. So I'm glad I didn't end up there, but three times to Bismarck, two times I got stuck because of snowstorms. One for indoor football and one for college basketball. So I always tell my friends I mean to move south and I keep moving farther north and now I'm in the Twin Cities where, of course, weather is always an issue. It's cold and snowy here, but that was one of my fun stories
2: involving weather. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are two horrifically different sides of the same person. Steve Cotton, the voice of the Marshall Thundering Herd, tells his story of living two different lives with two different names.
9: Stan and I both went by our real names while we were at Carson Newman together for four years. I actually left there, went back to the university of Florida where I did women's basketball and baseball in Gainesville. And Stan was still at Carson Newman for another year. He then got the job at Marshall university. And I ended up deciding at that point and kind of thought that I wasn't going to get the, the break to a full-time radio job. And I might need to think about a plan B decided to go to grad school And Stan convinced me to go to Marshall and that he would put me to work. I was the sideline reporter for the football broadcast and uh, did uh, color with him for the basketball broadcast. And we did some baseball and, and whatever. But because there had been some confusion with Cotton and Cotton in the Carson Newman years, when I came to Marshall, we decided to avoid that. And I went by the name Steve Glenn. Glenn's my middle name. And so for three years, two as a sideline sideline reporter from football, and then one in the booth with uh, Stan as the color analyst, I was Steve Glenn, he was Stan Cotton. And when he then got the job at Wake Forest, and a few weeks later, Marshall hired me, named me as the full-time replacement, well, I went back to being Steve Cotton. And there's a great letter, I have it tucked away somewhere, sent to the editor of uh, Herald Dispatch, the Huntington newspaper. Ripping Marshall for passing over Steve Glenn, who had done a great job <laughs> and had earned his opportunity, and giving the job to Stan Cotton's son, and nobody's ever even heard of him. <laughs> and uh, so that that was, eventually we got the word through to the person that, uh, yeah, you're a little confused on that. We understand the confusion, but nepotism was not involved.
2: Shh. This has been the Say The Damn Score podcast, little broadcast booth of horrors, part two. Please make sure to subscribe to this podcast by clicking on the big subscribe button at the top of com. Also, honest feedback is always appreciated, whether that's iTunes reviews or emails or social media posts. It helps the show get better. Thanks for tuning in again today, and remember, next time you're on the air... Make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more. Ha ha ha.